Welcome to the Vineyard Justice Network podcast. I'm Cheryl Pitluck, and today I'm speaking with two members of Vineyard of Harvest Church in Walnut, California. Vineyard of Harvest actually has two separate congregations, with the Chinese-speaking congregation of about 300 adults and the English-speaking congregation of about 120 adults. Today, I'm pleased to have the opportunity to learn more about the ministry in Iraq that they are a part of. My guests are Stephanie Sang, who currently attends and oversees operations at Vineyard of Harvest Church. She has spent more than 18 years in the education field and is the Director of Education with the nonprofit organization Habibi International, as well as the founder of Lights on Learning, an education center providing highly personalized tutoring in partnership with schools. She's passionate about using education as a platform to speak into the lives of young people and to create critical thinkers and leaders who will transform the world around them. Welcome, Stephanie. Thank you, Cheryl. Hi. Jessica Chan has attended Vineyard of Harvest for 27 years and has served in various ministries throughout her time at the church, mainly youth ministry. She currently volunteers teaching for the children's ministry and serves with her husband in the young families group that they attend. She has been in education sector for many years and now works in advancement for Habibi International. Jessica is also at home raising her young child and hopes that she can eventually serve in Iraq with the entire family. Hi, Jessica. Hi, Cheryl. Thanks for that intro. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) Stephanie and Jessica, you know I love hearing about the work that you and the church are doing in Iraq. Why don't you tell us how you got involved in Iraq of all places? My dad is a senior pastor at Vineyard of Harvest and it was actually him. He went first in March, 2017. And when he told us he was thinking of going, we didn't think he was serious. And we laughed at him because he's this Chinese immigrant man who, if he goes for two days without eating Chinese food, he gets cranky, you know, he has to sleep in his own bed. And we were like, what are you going to do in Iraq? Like he was just so determined to go. So when we figured out he was serious, I kind of got scared and I told him it's dangerous. I don't think you should go. I told him like, just stay at home, you know, pastor the church and do your thing. And he, he just couldn't shake it off. And, um, this is during the refugee ban and there's a lot of criticism of evangelical christians that just said like they don't care about the refugees and this further confirmed his conviction that as a pastor of our church he needed to lead the way to show that now more than ever it's our responsibility as christians to step up outside of our comfort zone beyond the suburbs to love and help those in need even if it's inconvenient or uncomfortable and uncertain so he went to iraq and every day that he was there he would send us pictures and He would share stories of families who were affected by war and ISIS, and it was just really heartbreaking. He told us the names of orphans, the widows, the people who were out there, and it became very real for me as I 
followed what he was doing. I can't explain the conviction that welled up inside of my heart when I saw a photo of my dad, who was an orphan. He was holding a little boy who was orphaned by ISIS. And it just broke my heart that this was happening. That's when I knew that I was supposed to go too. That's amazing. Jess, you have anything to add? Well, I, I actually got to see our pastor, Stephanie's dad, leave um, during that time. And of course, I too thought it was a, a little crazy. But after seeing Stephanie go, I had actually served with her for many years, teaching um, English camps in China. And so just having that familiarity of serving with her and seeing her do that there in Iraq really excited me. And she shared a lot with me when she came back. And, um, and I had already felt convicted at that time that I was already praying for an opportunity to step out of my comfort zone and do something outside of the walls of the church and, and just really serve in a way that, you know, maybe is even dangerous or, or is just a risk to take. After she shared with me about her trip to Iraq, um, my husband, when we got home, he told me, you know, I think you should go. And at that time, it was a crazy thing for him to say because we had a baby. Now she's two, but at the time she hadn't turned one yet. And he just felt convicted that God was telling me that I should go and serve. And I had just quit my job, just became a stay-at-home mom. And I was like, okay, well then, you know, if you're saying God's going to take care of our family, then I will go out and serve. And so I just knew at that moment that God had orchestrated all of that for me to step out and serve in Iraq. You mentioned the danger issue, and I'm sure that a lot of people are thinking about that. What really is the danger level for you all when you're in Iraq? Well, I know that's the major concern when when we tell people that we're going. However, um, the place that we serve in Iraq is in the northern region, and it's it's technically called Kurdistan. And so it has its own government, it has its own border, it's separated from the southern region of Iraq where ISIS was reigning over that area. And so the area that we were in at the time was technically safe, it had its own military. Um, there was no actual warfare going on within that region. Um, and so when we serve there, that's where all the refugees and the displaced people live. That's where all the camps are. So it is a safer place. It's where they're running to, to find safety. Um, so it's almost like going to, you know, just a normal country. You know, you don't see anything abnormal going on. You don't feel unsafe. Um, you don't see any warfare going on. And so that's the big difference. Um, and, and it's surprising for most people to hear that. I know that you specifically work with a group of people called the Yazidis. How did that come about and why are they there in these camps? Yes, so um, in 2014, ISIS planned an attack on the Yazidi people. They're an ethnic minority group and they do live, they live in the Nineveh region of Iraq, which is closer to the northern portion. And so for this group, they have their own religion, um, they're not Muslims. They don't have, you know, a, a, a Bible or a book that they study. It's more like an orally past tradition that they have. And so ISIS was really against that. And they felt like they were devil worshipers. So they basically planned a genocide attack on their people in August of 2014. 
And what happened was they murdered thousands of their men and they captured thousands of their women and children and enslaved a lot of the women into sex slavery. And then for the people who were able to escape, um, they had to go on foot and just take whatever they had with them at the moment. And they, they tried escaping to these nearby mountains in which they, they were stuck there for about two weeks with no food or water. And this is in the middle of the, the summer where it's over 100 degrees over there. And a lot of people died along the way. Old people, babies, um, you know, just people were watching their family and friends die along the way. It's just really, really sad story. And so eventually, they were, um, the people who did survive were able to walk on foot to the northern region of Iraq and find refuge there in which um, different um, organizations built camps for them. There's a lot of UN camps there, and that's kind of where they've been for the past four years and where they've relocated. And most of them have not gone back home to their hometown now that ISIS is gone, but most of them have still not returned. In fact, there's about 2 million people who are still living in northern Iraq as displaced people. That's, that's amazing. So uh, they're afraid to go back home, most of them. What's the plan? That's a really good question. They're kind of stuck in a hard place because they don't really have a home to go back to because a lot of their homes are destroyed and where they're currently living is just either in tents or makeshift homes. You know, they have a lot of needs right now. A lot of them can't get jobs because of their low status in the culture as being ethnic minorities. Just their background in general, most of them used to be farmers or sheep herders. And so for them to get a different type of job is more difficult. They need to learn and go back to school, um, which is hard. They don't have a lot of money. They're in low income. Obviously, they're living in poverty at this point. Physically, they have poor hygiene, poor health. Any kind of medical care you see them getting will be provided by a medical clinic of an NGO. And so that's something that we have, our group has provided. But that's the gist of them. I mean, we were surprised to even see that you know, some of the kids that we taught had never even seen a dentist before until we brought one to them. Um, so that's kind of like the conditions that they, that's reality for them. And then just their mental health, you know, surviving a genocide is one thing, running away for your life, having family members still missing, having mothers, sisters caught by ISIS, enslaved, and many of them still have not returned home. There's a lot for them to process, a lot of healing that they need. And so just the need is great for therapists and counselors and mental health workers just to come and, and help them. And then one other thing that's really near and dear to Stephanie in my heart is just a lot of the kids don't have proper education. And so some of them do go to school, but from what it seems like, the quality of their schooling is not great, and the teachers are not great, and sometimes there aren't enough teachers, or sometimes the teachers don't show up. And so that's kind of the reality for them, and then some of them can't pay to go on a bus to go to school because they don't have money. So there's just this cycle that keeps them stuck in this poverty, and they've kind of been in the same situation for four years, and so we just feel like we need to come in and help them with anything and everything that we can in our power to help them with what they need. Okay, so 
Vineyard of Harvest partners with Habibi International. What does that mean? How is the church involved? Habibi International is an NGO that was started by Willie Tan and David Yu, and they responded to an urgent request for medical help in 2015 for the Yazidis. They just brought friends and colleagues along, and it kind of grew into a network of churches who felt called to share God's love with this unreached people group. And so as a church, uh, we raise funds and awareness. We send people on teams over to Iraq, and there's just so many needs and people who go serve in whatever capacity they're able to. When we're over there um, in, in Iraq, we drive into various camps for the day to run clinics and classes. And we also partner with the local churches that are there and also the long-term workers so that we can build upon what they're doing. At different sites, we run medical and dental clinics, like what Jessica said. Depending on how large the team is, they see between 100 to 500 patients a day. And it's just crazy. Like you see so many people flocking over there. They're just waiting all day just to see a doctor or a dentist because they're just so desperate or they've been in pain for a long time. And we often have to turn people away because there's just, we've seen people all day and we just, there's not enough time and there's not enough people to come and help. And if you're not in the medical field or the dental field, there's also people who just come to support. They take temperatures, they pray for people, they keep people in line or organize food distribution. And we also have a women and safe house ministry. And many churches and organizations have helped raise funds to build a safe house for female ISIS survivors to find uh, refuge. Because they have been raped or maybe they've given birth to babies fathered by ISIS, they're ostracized by their communities and their babies aren't accepted. And either they'll say like, you need to abandon your baby or kill it, or we won't accept you back. And so this is um, just a safe place for them to find asylum. And we have women who come to work with the female survivors and they teach them sewing or knitting or English and just work on building relationships with them. And we've also had mental health professionals come in to work with them and train the local NGO staff there. In terms of education, we've been able to start English camps for kids ranging in ages from seven to 14. And people come and help with games and songs and teaching. And you might wonder, like, what can you do in two weeks to educate kids? And part of it is just sparking a love and excitement for learning and reigniting that hope um, that they can see um, a hope for their future and just want to keep on learning. A lot of them don't care about school. They'd rather work because they need money to feed their families. But when they can see how much fun learning can be or that they are capable of learning because a lot of them feel like they're not good at school. Um, we hope that that kind of connects them back and they'll make a greater effort to go to school, their own local schools as well, and maybe just to learn English and give them more opportunities to have work. And one of the things that is um, we're really excited about is this mentorship program we've started with 12 boys from a village and they range in age from 13 to 20. And these boys all lost their homes when they ran from ISIS. Now they live in unfinished stone homes. And they're a mix of boys who go to school or who have dropped out because they need work to support their families. And we're building upon what a long-term worker has done before. So he taught them skills for construction and he also taught them English. And because of what he's done, we're able to converse with them without a translator. And we've had multiple classes with them and built relationships with them through these sessions. And some of the classes we've done, um, we've taught guitar, we taught them to tell their story through PowerPoint. We've done emotional management, leadership principles through watching movies. And we've also done a 
character mentorship class uh, focused on initiative. And over time, these 12 have, have also become our translators and assistants for our English camps with the Yazidi children. So it's really cool to see that they're not just on the receiving end, but they're also practically now helping to shape and change things for their community. That's great. Um, I think that one of the really special things about what you're doing is that you are building relationship. It's continuing. You're keeping in touch. Can you tell us a little more about the relationships that you've built with these boys? Yeah, so through the mentorship classes, we've been able to establish pretty close relationships with them, and we're also able to keep track, um, keep in touch with them through uh, Messenger. And they see that we come back and we bring more people and we're committed and that we care. And so that makes a huge difference in what they're willing to share with us. And it gives us a platform to speak into their lives. And we talk about so many things like girls they like and also other things like life purpose and the hope that we have. And one of the more successful ways we've been able to build character and instill values inside of them is through our initiative class. This is back in May, and we talked about how people with initiative can change the world. And they just could not believe it. One of them was like, we, we can't even leave Iraq. How can we change the world? And we talked about how it's just taking the first step, and we try to practice it. So we brainstormed, and we decided to tackle the problem of trash. There is just trash everywhere in their village. There's no trash cans. They can't afford trash bags. There's no trash service. So people just throw trash wherever they go and then they burn trash like plastic, whatever it is, even like large items like chairs, they just burn it to get rid of it. And entering into that conversation, it was very discouraging because the more we talked, the more resistant the boys became. They said, oh, people are going to laugh at us. We're going to be picking up diapers. Like, girls won't like us. Um, it's not their problem. They said cleaning up trash wouldn't solve anything because the next day there would be more trash. Their comments reflected a lot of their own beliefs on being powerless to create change and to even help themselves. But we reviewed what we learned about initiative, which is seeing a need, owning the need, and then meeting a need. And we talked about how initiative is making the choice to do the right thing without being asked. And we said, are you willing to try? And they agreed to try. And finally, there was like a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. And they slowly started to get excited about this. And this trash discussion uncovered a larger issue, which is there's no government support for a trash system in the village. They kept, they kept talking and trying to problem solve. And then they said, if every family had a supply of trash bags, and if a truck came around to pick up the trash every week, and if we also taught the families not to throw trash everywhere and why burning trash was bad for the environment and for the children, um, their village would have a chance to be clean. And they talked about the steps they would need for this to happen. And we needed to talk to the mayor. We needed to find a truck. We needed to organize manpower to pick up the trash bags. It was really exciting to sit back and watch them discuss among themselves. Whereas like half an hour before they were just like, we can't do anything. In May, we decided to start small. We took the first step and we just cleaned up the village a little bit. And um, they were shocked by just cleaning up the village. People actually came alongside and they were helping. They were bringing the trash to them. Little kids were following us around, picking up trash. And so a few people even thanked us. And they were just mind blown because it was opposite of what they had said. And when we went back home, we calculated how much it would cost to buy trash bags, pay a truck, and the labor to collect bags for the year. And um, at VOH, we fundraised $10,000 with our church, and people just got behind it. And we went back in June, 
with another team and together with the boys we counted the families in the village we marked which houses they lived in and we started with two zones and we implemented their idea to start a trash service and so they worked and they got paid out of the funds we raised um, and so they passed out trash bags to families every week and then collected them back and took them to a landfill and they did this for four months um, in 115 degree weather. The boys just showed up and, and did this and they worked together. There were, there were like a few kinks that we had to work out. Like um, some of them didn't come on time or some families weren't um, buying into it. And we, each step of the way we problem solved and we brainstormed how would we address this solution. And yeah, they, they did it and they took pictures. They sent it to us via messenger so we could keep up what they were doing. And when they were discouraged, we would all message them like, you are doing a great job, like keep it up. And this would be, um, they, they take out the trash on Thursday mornings. And so this is Wednesday evening for us. So Wednesday evening where everyone's just texting them to encourage them. And we went back in October and this time the boys themselves asked if they could expand three more zones and so we made metal signs for trash um, drop-off points. We went home to home to tell families about what we were doing to get them on board. And um, a few days ago, they sent pictures of um, them collecting trash in the pouring rain. And then the truck, the, uh, the truck got stuck in the mud. Um, and it took them almost four hours to collect trash from all five zones. They were soaking wet and they had to push the truck, but then they did it. They were so excited that even when it was raining, people were bringing out the trash bags. And we still have a long way to go, and we definitely did not solve the larger problem of trash. But in the end, it's really not about trash. It's about empowering these young people to step up as leaders and to know that their actions can create change right where they are, even if they're not rich or powerful. And it's been really awesome to see them take ownership of an issue in their village and be able to change people's behaviors and living conditions based off of them choosing to do something and because their neighbors see them working so hard, uh, the families also try to help minimize the trash in their zones. And these kids are instilling a sense of shared responsibility. And in doing so, they're restoring dignity and pride to a place that the Yazidis are now calling home. And the whole thing is kind of like running a youth group. And sometimes they're discouraged and we try to encourage them. And you know, we take them out, we play soccer with them, take them to the movies and just try to build relationship with them. And, also try to inspire them towards something greater. Oh, one of the things that we've done that we took them to the mall and then some of them rode an escalator for the first time and they were so scared. And it was, it was just so heartwarming to be part of these experiences with them, um, seeing them experience like having fun, but also seeing them get together and work together as a team and encourage them. And yeah, we just love them. And back home, we want people to be saved and discipled and enter into community but over there, it's backwards. We enter into community, we disciple, and in the process, we're sharing God's love. How has this experience changed your perspective on God or serving or just how you share God's love? Well, one of the things that you learn is that your own love wears off so fast. The novelty in the honeymoon period just goes away and you start to see the bad attitudes and the weaknesses. Oh, you see everything. I mean, this is a group of teenage boys. We work with a lot of different people, um, you know, children and adults, but then we focus mostly on these boys that we're mentoring. And you see that sometimes they get 
discouraged by their circumstances and they hang out together and they spiral down together. Um, and their older brothers or their fathers are always either gambling or smoking or drinking because they feel hopeless about their future. So these boys feel the same way and they're drinking and gambling and smoking and we're trying to tell them not to and we're trying to tell them to work and it just seems sometimes it feels like things aren't really changing. And, you know, they worry about acne and girls and they're struggling with heartbreak and peer pressure and all of those things and trying to love them through it all is can get tiring and it's a battle to say come i'm here for you when you really want to say like go i've had enough and you just want to see results you want to see change and you want to see what you're doing is making a difference but god doesn't withhold his love from us when we get difficult or when we don't get it and he pursues us through it all and he goes with us and that's what transforms us and I'm still trying to learn how to love extravagantly like that with no agenda. And I've learned that I just basically have to step aside and set aside my own expectation and let God's love flow through me and let the Holy Spirit have the freedom to love extravagantly through me because my love isn't strong enough. And I've also learned that the end goal has to be God's love too. I can't just love with God's love and then so that I can receive their love. I need to love with God's love and um, and be content with receiving God's love because in the end, that's what's enough. Yeah, that's definitely something that has changed my thinking about serving and what it means to share God's love. Sure. Yeah, I think I totally resonate with Stephanie just said and that like I feel like at least for our team as a whole, after you know, after you've served more than one trip. <laughs> I think you've kind of come down your high horse or uh, taken a break from the honeymoon phase and you really do realize that <clears throat> you can't just serve out of your own power and your own might, but it has to be through God. And I think one of the major lessons we, we learned this time was that. And um, a lot of times when, when you travel into you know, a different country or into a third world situation, you think, well, I'm going to come in here and I'm going to save these people and I'm going to take them out of the situation that they're in and make their lives better. And you feel like you need to do everything in your power um, to change that situation. But I think for me, I realized that that's not what God was telling me to do. You know, he wasn't saying, you know, you need to be the savior for them but you just need to commit to them and you need to love them and you need to be a part of the bigger picture of what I'm already doing there. Mm -hmm. And so it was realizing my place in the bigger picture and just finding a lot of peace that I don't need to carry this huge burden, that this is all on me, you know, that I have to own all of this um, because it's not, and it's really physically impossible for me to be able to do that. <laughs> Um, and it was great. It was eye-opening, and it's good to think, to realize, you know, we are part of the body of Christ, and we're not coming in as many saviors, you know, but we're just a part of the body of Christ. And I think another thing that, like, God really opened my eyes to was just His presence, um, just seeing His presence in another land. Um, you know, I've traveled to other countries before, but being in Iraq was a totally different experience. You know, we're standing in like the Bible days, you know, the land of Nineveh, and you feel like you only hear stories about it and you read about it, 
but to be standing there and, and just looking at the sheep that are walking by and people who are still shepherding, you know, in a way that you just feel like, you know, they're not shepherding with, you know, dogs and trucks, but, you know, just with their, their sticks and they're standing there all, all day. And it just seems so um, surreal that the God of ancient times and ancient days is still the God of today. And the God um, who started out, you know, in the Middle East is still there today, even though Iraq seems like an evil place. It seems like a place that is just full of warfare and terrorism. But God really opened my eyes to see there are so many Christians in this land who have been there for centuries. And God's presence is definitely still there. And he definitely still cares about his people there. And so that just really struck a chord in my heart. Um, because it just made me so much more compassionate for people in Iraq. And I think that's one thing that's really hard for people to feel is just compassion for, for Iraq, you know, or even for the Middle East, because you have so many ideas of what that place is. Mm. And it's just, it's not all completely true. And you, there's so many people that are in need there and hurting and that God loves. And, you know, I just, the call is definitely there. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Steph, anything to add? Yeah. I think just serving over there really pulled me out of the tunnel vision of my own life. And I was so stuck in the details of my to-do list. And this helped me remember that God is so big and he's doing so much around the world outside of my own to-do list. And I think sometimes we were waiting for a plan or we feel like we need to wait for the right moment. And well, for me, I've, for a while, I felt like I was putting my life on hold to do this Iraq thing. And But what if my life isn't on hold? What if I'm moving forward in my life like I'm supposed to? And what if God had planned for me to be here available for such a time as this? And my job is just to be willing. You know, and, and there's a quote um, we just put on our Instagram page this week, and it's by Abraham Lincoln. It says, commitment is what transforms a promise into a reality. And I think that's just us saying yes every day, showing up and being available and trusting that God will bring the change. Wow. Yeah. I am sure there are people that are listening to this right now, wanting to jump in, wanting to find out more. I know that the first I heard about this at, at church, my eyes welled up with tears. I just knew I wanted to at least find out more about it. I know that people can go to the website at habibiinternational.org. That's habibi, H-A-B-I-B-I-international.org. Or they can uh, go to your church website, Vineyard of Harvest, at the Vineyard USA website. You can get that information. You have upcoming trips, right? And people can donate and they can sign up for the prayer newsletter. Anything else you want to add before we sign off? Um, yeah, just if, you know, anyone is interested, um, our website has information regarding um, upcoming trips that we have in 2019. I'm not sure if we mentioned everything that we do, but there's plenty of opportunity out there. We do medical clinics, dental clinics. Uh, there's a lot of need for occupational and physical therapists. We're starting to do surgeries uh, next year. 
And of course we do our education camps. And then something else that we're, we're planning in 2019 is um, just starting the building of a community center in Iraq, and we want it to be local so that refugees and displaced people can easily access it. Um, and so this community center is, it's gonna be a big project for us. And so, it, you know, people of different backgrounds, talents, gifts, abilities, um, or who know anything about construction or anything like that um, is welcome to come and, and find more information. We also have a prayer newsletter that we send out monthly that you could sign up for to get just more updates about what we do and how you can get involved. And you can sign up for that on our website. Um, and then lastly, we just kind of wanted to share um, our name. So the organization that we're part of is called Habibi International. And um, what Habibi means is beloved. And it's kind of like how, you know, God calls us his beloved in the Bible. And so we just... And it's actually a phrase that they use so often in Iraq is, you know, when they say hello to a, a good friend, they, they call them Habibi. And it's it's just so sweet when we hear that. And, and it's kind of like our motto of wanting to love on these people. You know, we want them to be our beloved and we want them to know that we love them too. Um, so yeah, we're just excited to, to share that opportunity with other people in the vineyard. And we hope that people would take interest and, want to find out more and how they can get involved as well thank you so much you guys this has been great it makes me smile it warms my heart it it is just i think it is such a joy to god to see everything that you guys are involved in and what's going on and to all of you out there listening this has been your justice network podcast and we thank you for joining us For resources related to this episode, as well as to listen to previous podcast episodes, go to www.vineyardjusticenetwork.org. Follow us on Facebook at Vineyard Justice Network and on Twitter and Instagram at Vineyard Justice.